here, everyone. I hope it was a dandy. I was at the Starbucks and Barnes and Noble. This is an embarrassing old man blunder. I mean, it's really bad. It doesn't bother me, these sorts of things, making a fool of myself in public. So look at the, there's like a presentation of different drinks that they serve. And I saw that there's a special Diet Coke called the Marion said Marion dash Diet Coke. I'm like, hell, I got a special Diet Coke. I love Diet Coke. I want to try Starbucks new Diet Coke. So I go up to the lady at the counter. I'll have the Marion. <laughs> she said, well, do you mind telling me, uh, remind me of what drink that is? I'm like, you don't, you don't know your own drinks. I look over at the board and it's actually a list of their staff and their favorite drinks. <laughs> so Marion's favorite drink was just a Diet Coke. So she said, the Diet Cokes are over there. Just grab one. <laughs> um, this episode, people in your life who know how to love you well, they can only do that if there's real connection. I remember in my youth, late teens, if I was in college and I was going through a lot of pain and I thought, man, me and God's got this. Then my brother calls out of the blue, wondering how I'm doing, and I unload on him. And I don't even think he gave me a lot of advice, maybe none, but something was eased just in that conversation. Felt so good just to have my brother in my corner with what I was going through. Hmm. Maybe connection is one of God's primary ways of providing peace, comfort, and that ease. It's very eye-opening, but even to this day, I'll still be surprised how being around other folks or having a conversation when I really don't feel like it, if it's with people I love, I always feel better. I feel like I've been on the other side of the toughest seasons of my life, part of a greater 10 years, last 10 years. It's been a lot of beauty, been a lot of hardship. I couldn't imagine some of these hard times, what it would have looked like if I lacked true connection with other people. If you're isolated with no community, reach out. Many of the patrons of this podcast enjoy what we call the bear with community. Bearing with one another. It's not everyone's cup of tea, but maybe worth checking out. If the lowest tier of being a patron, which is $8 a month, is preventative of you joining, would love to touch bases and forget about all that money stuff. So today you'll hear from a therapist talking about her TED Talk, which entailed her studies that science backs up the need for real healthy connection, like it can add years to your life sort of thing. Elizabeth, the therapist who you'll be hearing from, also contributes to another podcast that we released yesterday on the Seacoast Church podcast that I produce. But on that one, her and I talk for a lot shorter of a time because there are four additional therapists all sharing three healthy practices to take into the new year. You guys know how I feel about mental health and the immense impact therapy has had in my life. Reckon a lot of you will enjoy that one too, as much as I did. Hope you guys had a great Christmas. Happy New Year. I told my sons the other day, this is the only 23 that they'll ever experience as far as years because they'll be dead before 21, 23. And I told them, I share that with you guys. I'll be dead before the next 23, too. It was a magical moment. We met.
may have met once, but you it's, it's kind of like you didn't have the time of day for me. It may or may not have been your wedding day, but <laughs> that may have been the only time I've ever met you was when you and Jeremy got married. That must have been 01 or 02, right? It was 20 years ago on Wednesday. Golly. I think I think I saw it through Jeremy's Facebook post, your TED Talks, and mm-hmm. I didn't even write this down to ask you, but I'm I am curious. How do you get on TED Talks? Is there a TED Talks website where you submit an idea or you submit your whole TED Talk? Like how how does that all unfold? Yeah, well, I think normally the process is that you apply, they sort through, and then you pitch your idea, then they sort through, and there's kind of a series of auditions. Um, for me, uh, Jeremy and I have a dear friend who runs the TEDx at CU Boulder, and he just kept saying, will you please come? Will you please come? So for, for me, I just we decided what I'd talk about, and I went on. Gotcha. So before we get into the meat of your talk, why don't we mm-hmm. give the listeners a little bit of your background as far as your education and where I guess most of your focus is? I actually started off in education. So working with working with kids and realized pretty quickly that I cared a lot more about what was happening emotionally than than educationally. Then I went back to school to get a master's in counseling from um, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, the one in Charlotte. Took dual, dual tracks, marriage and family track and the um, just LPC general. And so and pretty much immediately, I mean, I remember the class in gra- graduate school where I learned about attachment mm-hmm. and I learned about a particular kind of couple's work focuses on attachment. And I was just sold from that point on. I was just, that was it. That was it for me. That was... 12 to 14 years ago, something like that. Since then, I've worked with couples, primarily in private practice. I also worked for a church counseling center for a bit. And also with individuals, just with that attachment lens. So with the lens of using relationship to heal trauma, whether that's between a couple or whether that's me and the person sitting across from me. Gotcha. So I, I primarily work with adults. Yeah. Like I would imagine the sort of talk therapy that you do is a lot of visiting the past, I would assume. Sort of. There are tracks where you can learn, you can spend a lot of time kind of cognitively processing your attachment style, why you got there. The way that I work and the way I have been trained is that we actually work with what comes up in the room because really any sort of relational pattern you have shows up in every relationship you have. And so whether it's a couple or whether it's me, things start happening and we make them really explicit between the two of us um, or, the, or between the two of them, you know, depending how we're doing it. As part of that, the past definitely comes in, but it's not with the desire of cognitively understanding. It's with the desire of working with the body around um, being with someone and doing it differently. Gotcha. Instead of me telling people what, like, I don't, I want you to tell people what the TED Talk is about. I I watched it, took a lot of notes, but what would you tell people? And then I've just got tons and tons of questions. This is just awesome. Yeah, I would say it is tracking relationships from two perspectives. Um, One, as a therapist who knows all the research around how vital they are to everything in our lives. And then also tracking it as a human being who has struggled, still struggles quite a bit with relationships and understands how hard they are. 
really wanted people to walk away with a sense of as much as you can from the stage, <laughs> communicating, you're not alone in this. This is all of us. Right. Yeah. The healthy sort of connection that you you talk about and that we're going to get into, you call it a need, correct? Oh, yeah. This stuff, just, just educate me here. So I would say that food water and sex. I would say food and water belong in a different category as sex. And I would say that maybe sex would belong in the same category, depending on who the person is, what you're talking about. It's not a need as far as huh. you will die if you had no emotional contact. Oh, that's such a that's such a good question. Okay. Sex matters a lot in the sense that it is part of connection. I do think it's really important, but the research around relationships shows that our chances of dying increase like 50% if we don't have close relationships. Gosh. That we won't recover from cardiac events. The impact of relationships is this, it is equal to all the main ways that people die. Traditionally, right. the way that people die. We started learning that if we don't touch babies, they will actually die. A lot of people have heard about those stories of orphanages in other countries, and it's real. So it's, we're, we're talking pretty literal then. We are. Very literal. We are. So this is an actual need and we can throw the word survival around. 100%. Man. Mm -hmm. You are probably going to die sooner, faster, and be far less healthy if you don't have close relationships. Right. And there are so many research studies, especially around cardiac health. I don't know why people have gotten so into that, but I mean, it is such a killer of people. So that makes sense. But I wonder if that's connected to anxiety, like the stress goes up when you're anxious. And so that probably affects the heart. And like we know that close relationships takes our entire nervous system and just lowers it, calms it, soothes it. If we don't have that, if we go through hard things and don't have a way to calm that down and we stay up, upregulated is kind of how we say it. And when you hang out at that place, you're anxious, you're depressed, your inflammation levels are higher in your body. There's just a lot of right. negative fallout from being in that place. Right. With your practice and the mm -hmm. number of people you talk to, if you had to guess, like how common is it for someone to live most of their lives without any healthy connection. Is that pretty common? And the reason I ask is I'm kind of one of those guys who I've always felt like community was super important. Mm -hmm. That's what life is all about. So I've always had mm -hmm. what I think to be pretty healthy relationships. I've had good friendships that are long lasting, good family, all of that. So I really would be shocked if you said, no, this is pretty common. Like there's people that <laughs> go through most of their lives with not a whole lot of good connection yeah. at all. I don't see a ton of people who have zero connection. I do have some who are just completely isolated, but everyone I see and obviously they're they're kind of self-selecting. I'm a relational therapist, right? But every everyone I see, and if I look at my life, if I look at the people in my life, I find that more people do struggle to maintain close relationships than don't. Like my experience is that your experience is rather unusual. Yeah, right, right. I think to be fully transparent, and our, our listeners are uh, aware of this, but I did have a pretty significant friendship break. And with people that I did a lot of this public stuff with. And so unfortunately, it was kind of a, a public thing. So in no way am I saying that my my record is is flawless as far as maintaining relationships. I feel like I've just always had 
had good ones? Similarly, like I, I think 40s have been a magical decade for me in terms of just kind of really getting it a little bit and being able to look around and feel really just kind of delighted about the relationships that I've been able to form and how safe and solid they feel. And you mentioned, you mentioned that in your talk too, how this, this has been a challenge for you. I'd love to hear a little bit of that personal as far as what's been a challenge for you. Yeah. I mean, for me, I mean, I think there's this kind of two tracks. One is the track of, I grew up pretty isolated. I homeschooled kind of at a time when no one else did. And so it was pretty isolated. And so when I entered kind of like mainstream, you know, public school, went to, you know, well, and I went to Chapel Hill. So like huge, right? I just kind of didn't know how, I didn't really know how to do it at all. I knew how to take care of people. My dad is a pastor. I grew up kind of knowing how to do that. I think emotionally and practically, but I didn't know how to pursue people. I didn't know how to trust that they liked me. I didn't know how to let them care. And so I kind of just decided I didn't need people. And really just kind of did my life focused on other things. So it was a long process of learning to recognize my need, learning how to seek it in other people, learning how to receive it when they gave it, learning to take the risk. Um, and so I'm assuming you there, you learned this well into marriage, like Jeremy didn't come by and then you're like, oh, I need people. <laughs> no, I do remember in our early years of marriage, he'd always want to have people over and I'm like, why? <laughs> and now, now we've kind of like switched. This is so crazy. I, I really think he's a lot like Priscilla and I'm a lot like you. So I was a school teacher when we first got married and I, I, I mean, just a, a, a school teacher. I come home on a Friday. I'm exhausted. So she comes home. She's like bouncing from the wall. She's like, oh, I'm so happy. I was like, what's going on? She's like, I just, I just scheduled a double date for us. And I was like, with who? She's. <laughs> gives these random names. I was like, who are you? Why would you do this to me? <laughs> like, are, yes. are you sent yes. to torment me? <laughs> 100%. That's so familiar. Oh, that's fun. Yeah. And, and Jeremy and I, we have had a long road of therapy and had, and had, and are still really learning to lean in when there's conflict. We're kind of the type where something happens and we can get along really well and we just kind of go our separate ways and can end up pretty disconnected. And so it's taken a lot of work for us to learn how to ask for our needs to be met, to be responsive to that, to stay connected that way. So they've kind of gone side by side. I think there's been this marriage work that has really left me feeling safer and able to take more risks. And then there have been these friendships kind of developing alongside that. Yeah. This this may be a question where you could go in a million directions. I really don't know. But when you talk to someone who is having a really hard time with healthy relationships and pursuing or maintaining or whatever, is there some low-hanging fruit with what the culprit typically is? Yeah, it's a good question. Abuse of any kind, whether that be physical, sexual, spiritual, always makes people unsafe. So your, your, your body just kind of learns. I'm with another person. They're dangerous, so I'm going to put up all my walls. Any kind of abuse just requires a lot of work to get around that. But I also think for most of us, most of us to many of us, it's more of an experience of not that we had terrible parents or we were so poorly treated, but that it was about what we didn't get in really small and subtle ways. The getting locked up in our bedroom when we're throwing a temper tantrum. So being told that like when you feel something, you're going to be by yourself. And once you calm down from that, then you can come back. 
or just a lack of general responsiveness to emotion. Those things are small, but when, when they happen over time, they actually, it's little T trauma, but it's, it's traumatic. And I think that's where a lot of people kind of our age are kind of walking around in that place where their body does not trust that they can feel emotion, be connected to another person, feel safe. Um, there's just a lot of blocks because of that. Is it our generation, would would you suppose, is the first to really start to recognize the importance of mental health? It seems like our grandparents as a whole would think if you pursue a therapist, then you're obviously crazy. And my parents, they have seen the wonders it's done in me. So for sure, they value it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if they were able to ever do it on their own. Like, are we the yeah. first generation? Because my kids are are being taught the importance. They, they saw me, you know, they saw their dad go through mm-hmm. a mental health crisis in 2019. And mm-hmm. a lot of our kids carry a lot of the anxiety and depression tendencies. So we have them in therapy and it's something that, is just a part of their day-to-day health. That wasn't like that for me. No, 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 for sure. Same. Yeah, I do think our generation is seeing it very differently. I mean, I think there's still a lot of stigma. It depends. I think in the church, a lot of stigma can still remain, but it is dramatically different. And I think some, I think there's a variety of reasons for that, but I think some of it is the research that's coming through around neurobiology. It's hard to argue with that. I just think we know more right. things that we couldn't know before because we didn't have access to the brain and we didn't have access to what was happening to kids if you weren't showing up in certain ways. But I will tell you, we have this, this is even before COVID, we have started seeing this shift that I, I don't, I can't totally explain where adults are wanting to come into therapy, initiating it themselves, wanting to come into family therapy with their adult children. And that's been a super exciting and new shift. Right where we see this repair and connection and willingness to go there. That is pretty new, actually. That does sound, that's really cool. That's, and mm-hmm. I, with, with social anxiety, it, can that, yeah. can that be something that is purely physiological? And the example I would give is my brother and I both grew up in a pretty healthy household and we were raised by the same two parents. I'm the most outgoing person don't have a shy bone in my body. He's the complete opposite uh-huh. extreme to where it's inhibited his quality of life to mm-hmm. where he's needed to be medicated and that sort of thing. Can that be purely physiological, just something in your brain? Yeah. And I think, and I think it can also be, you know, just exacerbated by things that weren't necessarily terrible, right. but you put the two together Yep, and it's hard. Right. So the, the million dollar question that I think is so important to all of us, you, you talk basically healthy relationships are absolutely vital. They are an absolute need. I mean, even, even Mm -hmm. like I was writing that, like less inflammation, more social competency, lower stress response. Mm -hmm. I mean, and it boils down to a good relationship and what that is. And it boils down to accessibility, responsiveness, and emotional engagement. Why don't you tell people uh, briefly what (laughs) accessibility, responsiveness, and emotional emotional engagement is. And you and you would say, yeah. hey, it really does boil down to these three things. If you can check these three things off, you've got a good friend. Yeah. Or you're doing you're doing pretty darn well with your with your spouse, partner. Actually I've learned this since my talk. The accessibility responsive uh, responsiveness, Bowlby, which was kind of the first attachment guy in the seventies came up with. And then we Sue Johnson more recently added the emotional engagement part. But the accessibility, I'm not, I don't know if it's easier to talk about this in terms of like with kids or adults, but let's, I'll just go with the adults. 
the accessibility is you can reach out to you can reach out to your person and you know that that you can actually get them. They're not glued to their phone. They're not so dysregulated themselves constantly that they don't have the ability to like when you say, "Hey, I need you to like turn around and look at you." Um, responsiveness, I think, feels a little maybe easier to kind of picture and see. It's just this idea that when you say, "I I need you," that person is there. Usually, we're not brave enough or taught enough to say something that clear. We're not really good at turning to someone and say, I need you right now. More often, we'll just say things like, I'm having a really hard day or this sucks today, right? And that responsiveness looks like the person, so there's first the accessibility, they stop. And then they're with you. You have a sense that they are, the felt sense of being felt. They are feeling your emotions with you. They are caring about it. They're offering their physical presence. They're offering um, validation, just offering care. Right. And that in right? it, and that in itself is important. Oh, it's so important. I'm saying on so behalf important. of that friend, being in that moment without any sort of criticism or let's fix this. And, you know, I'm kind of talking to myself here also to remember right. this, but just being there and accepting the moment yeah. for what it is, is just huge. It's so big. And I feel like if, if there was one thing I could teach people in the church, right, in terms of like just loving each other, it would be this piece, this piece of embodied presence that I think is so hard for us because we'll get anxious and we want to fix it and we'll go up in our head. But just the sense of feeling their feelings with them and just sitting there and just being with them in it is an incredible gift. And it's not that easy for most of us. Right. It really isn't. I think I've had to do a lot of work about around that. And then the emotional engagement piece is just this piece of like face to face, like not, isn't it, is it men in black where they're like back to back that like the, I don't know. I, I, I have this movie picture yeah. on my mind. <laughs> you know what they're standing? Um, back to back, like a man and a woman fighting. I think it was Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie, but are like fighting the world back to back, right? Emotional engagement is the, is the opposite. It's face to face, right? It is this level of, it's, it's essentially connection. And it really follows from that accessibility and responsiveness. Like you are my special person. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I like how you described it as a very, like you said, we're talking some sacred ground here when yeah. you're in that space of, I don't know if it's not, I, I don't know if I'm going to be okay. And then to find that a person that you have a deep relationship with is there indeed. It it changes everything. Right. I I I I got to tell you this just because of the the relational connection. So one of your husband's best friend is one of my best friends, uh, Scott Sinclair. And when we, yep. uh, I, I I may be able to get through this without getting emotional, but mm-hmm. in 2019, I, I really did have like a a a, a really dangerous uh, bout of depression. I had gotten off my medication mm-hmm. that I'd been on since like 99, and you know, for me, it was I just got to see, you know, I got, you know, I'm, I'm okay with being on, on medication, mm-hmm. but I think that I'm healthy. I, I need to just try this out. And so mm-hmm. it almost cost me my life. And I remember oh, one man. morning I woke up and my wife had written on like, you know, I wasn't working or anything. And she wrote on a little dry erase board. Uh, Scott is coming to visit you. Well, I'm in Charleston. He's in Charlotte. And I'm like, what, what do you mean? And so <laughs> 
she, I do exactly what she said that she was, that I was going to do. I immediately was like, please tell him, turn the car around. And he already made up his mind that he was going to come. So he literally drives all the way to Charleston to see me for about an hour. And obviously that's a, a very precious demonstration of friendship. But now we, we laugh because somehow my feet ended up on his lap and the dude was caressing my feet right there on the couch. Oh my we laugh about oh it, but it really, I, it, I'll, I'll never forget it. And then another one of my friends, John Basil, I'll never forget him sitting on the couch with me. I'm at my parents' house and he basically says, Hey man, it, it was, he was dead serious. He said, I know you're in a hole. He said, I, I will be in the hole with you as long as you're in the hole. And he said, and you know, as, as you yeah. dig out, I'll dig out, but I am right here with you. And that was just all, all of those demonstrations of friendships were very reassuring because around the same time, I was also encountering some unhealthy demonstrations of, of friendship through all of that. But I just love the sacredness of that. Like you, yeah. you call it sacred. <laughs> that's it awesome. It, it is. Yeah. That's really, that's really beautiful. And I, and I had, I too have experienced both in dark periods of my life and the impact of the person who can be there. I can't, I just can't say it enough. I mean, those examples that you gave are perfect and beautiful. Right. There's just, there's no rhyme and reason. There's no way of measuring it, you know, as far as just what it does. It's so when, when you say that someone in order to find the accessibility, responsiveness, emotional engagement Mm -hmm. requires a comfort level with our own emotions what, what do you mean by being comfortable with our own emotions? When we're born, we feel an emotion raw, right? We just, we just feel it, right? And then we cry and it works itself out. It actually kind of moves through your body. It's not that it's not going to come back. And then you just kind of calm and you're okay. But I would argue most of us, I don't know if that's actually accurate, learned in childhood that we couldn't both feel and be with another person. Like the way I talk about it in my talk is that for me, it, it goes a variety of different ways. Sometimes people turn up their emotions and so they become overwhelmed by them constantly. If I get louder, if I feel it more right. unconsciously, then maybe the person will come and be with me. I did the opposite and we can go both ways where I just stopped feeling them. And so if I'm sitting, I'm sitting next to someone who is like in the depths of grief, right? And for me to be responsive, I need to feel their grief with them. It doesn't need to be to the degree that they feel it. I don't need to be overwhelmed by it, but I need to feel it with them. But I first have to connect to my own grief. And if I can't connect to my own grief, then I'm going to be sitting across from my a person who, you know, if we're using grief as an example, is in a, de- in a devastated place. And I'm just going to be a blank wall. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to dismiss it because I can't, I mean, that's the worst form, right? Dismiss it and minimize it and push it away because it would mean that I would have to connect to my own sense of grief. Right. And I, one, don't know how to, or two, can, but I'm afraid it's going to overwhelm me. And so I'm unwilling. Now, are we in the same territory? And and my wife would, would, would say this right now, if she was here, she's discovering that it, it sounds as if what she does is she takes the sorts of things that she suppresses and then she focuses all of her attention on helping other people. Like, is, is that, mm. is that similar territory? Like as far as the I mean, need I that we're going after? Potentially. I mean, I think that's a, I think that that's a way that it can go. I, the reality is when we don't 
disconnect to our own emotions, they don't actually go away. Right. Gotcha. They just get stuck in our body, um, shoved to the corner. My clients will talk about, now that's, that's in a box. That's <laughs> in the box. Right. And if we can't release it and move through it, then, then we're anxious, we're depressed. We can't, I mean, it's a lot of why, like we can't sit still, but we have to stay so busy because we can't tolerate for a moment sitting and feeling that. So it can manifest itself in that way of, well, I'll just take care of everybody else and then I won't. I am, I am definitely guilty of that, right. right? Like if I can take care of someone else, <laughs> then I can ignore what's happening inside of here. Right. A, a big part of your talk was self-regulation versus co-regulation. And mm-hmm. I think it would be just as simple as self-regulation is depending on yourself and co-regulation is being fine with depending on other people. Yeah, I think that's now, great. Now, would mm-hmm. historically has mental health over, I mean, we're fairly new science, but in the earlier years, was it geared more towards self regulation and being self-sufficient, do you think? I think it wasn't really actually that. It just really wasn't named, right? I I think it just wasn't even on anybody's radar kind of early in the therapy world. But I do think that whole kind of codependence movement that can be connected to addiction treatment circles, this obviously varies significantly, you know, group by group, but there can be a big emphasis on the avoidance of codependence around the survival and moving through addiction and that like, I don't know if you've heard the book codependent no more, like the, those kinds of things, I think, and I don't actually can't, don't even know or remember when that was published had a huge impact for people started saying, I've got to be completely separate from you. Right now. So I think one huge lesson that my wife and I have learned. So we're 20 years into this thing also. And I think this is my personal opinion that the church grooms you to be way too dependent on your spouse from the standpoint of your one, almost like a, their mental health is your responsibility. And it's, it's a little too far reaching. Mm -hmm. And obviously I want to take responsibility for my love and commitment for my wife, but my mental health is not her responsibility and hers is not mine. And I think that that was huge for us to realize, oh, I, I can do nothing to help her and she can do nothing to help outside of being there outside of of Mm -hmm. for comfort and all Mm -hmm. of that you're talking about hey this is this is a need we're talking uh with Mm co-regulation but some people may Mm -hmm. depend on others a little too much is there unhealthy unhealthy need for other people i I hate the codependent word but i think i I, the thing that codependency is describing is a real thing and it's and it is a problem. We kind of in the attachment world talk about it as effective or ineffective dependence. And so you're kind of talking about this ineffective dependence. So it's that thing where like, it's never enough, right? You reach for your person. You, you can't, you are unable to be sued. This is just one example. Right. Part of what happens for a lot of us is we never learn how to receive care. I think those of us helping positions are extra bad at that. Yeah. You know, we're, we're reaching for care from our partner. Our partners say they're not offering it or say they're offering it like quite well, but it we don't know how to let it in. So there's no soothing happening. So then we try again and we try again and we, and we ramp it up and we ramp it up and it just becomes, that's when we see these patterns of like, nothing I do for you is enough, right? It's really someone who's just not able to be soothed or calmed because they've never really learned 
how to give and receive care effectively. Gotcha. It's about, because when it's effective, it calms. Gotcha. So when someone appears to be too needy, it's that they're just not equipped to receive what what's readily available, potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Or they're with someone who can't give right. it. Or they've spent a lifetime not having their needs met, and they have a, a new person who actually can. And, and sometimes there's a bit of a period where you really got to fill the cup. You got to kind of overdo the reassurance. You've got to cut. I do this often with couples where they'll spend a lot of extra time reassuring, but they catch up yeah. really quickly. Yeah. This, this, this comment may get me in trouble and, and you can, you can advise me if you're like, Hey, yeah, maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe delete that. But I think that I, I would guess that, it, and I and I love the fact that women are are basically saying no more. You know, we're not going to be treated as unequal and empowerment mm-hmm. and just all of that. It is mm-hmm. it is great. I wonder if there is an excess though of yes, and that includes I'm not depending on anyone, not my spouse not anyone because of the empire empowerment and obviously the the history of that sort of opportunity really not being afforded to women just in general. It's interesting because in my experience, you know, because, you know, I, I would say that most women I know in the church are kind of having a moment of like, Mm-mm, I'm not doing this anymore. Beth Moore moment, baby. Right. <laughs> right? I, I, uh, she needs to, she yeah, needs to be coined I mean, that just like Billy Graham gets the Billy Graham rule. We should call these Beth Moore moments. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. And I guess I'm the women that I'm watching do that, kind of me included, we're just recognizing that men who have power and are not willing to share it are not the people we are going to go to, to have our emotional needs met. Whereas I think we're kind of learning not to sacrifice parts of ourselves in order to, to gain a seat at the table. Yeah. Right. I think it may, so I more see it as like, I mean, I, I guess it could absolutely kind of overcorrect that way as a, just personally, I watch myself leaning into Jeremy in exactly the same way. Right. Because he has always been my number one promoter of me. Right. He's always been my biggest fan. But I have found myself putting up more boundaries around people who tell me I can't do things. Yeah. (laughs) When the word mental toughness is thrown around, when I hear mental toughness, I kind of hear it as independent strength and I've got to, you know, get through something and be mentally tough. Would you agree that when we throw that word around, it it implies kind of getting through something on our own? Yeah, I that phrase. I'm like, I'm, what does that phrase even mean? I, <laughs> when I think of when I think of mental toughness, first I think sports. But if we take that aside and put right. it in a relational world, like what I picture with mental quote toughness is actually avoidance. Is like that. If I feel that thing, I'm not going to be able to keep going. So I'm going to package it and put it away, which actually, as we've talked about earlier, like makes us vulnerable to all sorts of things, right? Like we know that connection provides resilience. So it may mean that we can push through. I mean, I don't even know like what the goal of that is, to be honest. It may be that we stay okay, quote, okay. Right with relational relational issues or hard things that happen in our life. But again, it doesn't leave our bodies <laughs> until we've felt it. And so then we just kind of eventually become a ticking time bomb. Yeah. It's funny. I, as I was preparing, I was like, am I, 
have I been a pastor for so long that I've got to work in some scripture? <laughs> but I was like, no, this is actually pretty interesting. I'm like, man, what if this is like, what if this is brilliant thought? So you can pretend that it's brilliant if it's not, Elizabeth. So Jesus okay. in the Garden of Gethsemane, it uh-huh. seems like this is a demonstration of the sort of connection we need because, and and, and everybody's going to vary on theology, but my guess would be that mm-hmm. Jesus knew Hey, this is the road before me. I know there's no way out, but it sounds like Jesus just needed to reach out for connection, know that someone cares. There wasn't another way. He knew that. Is that brilliant? (laughs) I love that. I have so many thoughts about that. They go in so many different directions, right? If we know he was fully human, he was desperate to get out of that. And he reached for the person who loved him who loves him more than anyone. Right. right? I mean, I, I absolutely see that. I mean, he also was trying to get it from his friends, but they suck. So true. Right. True. They fell asleep, which is the opposite of responsiveness. But yeah, I just, I, I love like that. I mean, I know it's awful, but also that image of like that level of what we would call weakness, like crying blood right. with desperation and just longing to be with. Right. I, to- I I totally see that. Yeah. So my goal here is to have you for maybe another 15 minutes, and I'm going to just jam pack as much as I possibly can. Because I- I'm scrolling down here. I'm like, you know what? We're not going to spend as much time as I wanted to with all of this stuff. This is awesome. I really appreciate it. And so bear with me with bouncing all over the place. But okay. can people who do not know how to be good friends themselves have good friends? Uh, I think rarely. Rarely. I mean, I have people in my life that I'm definitely giving more than I'm getting, but there's not true connection. So there's a limit. Is there any mm-hmm. hope for narcissists to have good connection? And that real, I really don't know. I'm learning a little bit about narcissism, but can they connect with people in a healthy way? I mean, I'm going to say no. Uh, I, I think, you know, narcissism is on a spectrum, right? There's like narcissistic traits that we all have all the way up to a diagnosis of narcissism, right? But um Shame blocks connection, which is a huge part of narcissism, right? And um, there's no vulnerability, which is also a huge part. And to me, the biggest thing is that someone with narcissism cannot repair. They cannot say, I am sorry. I got that wrong. I hurt you. I care about the impact. Let's try again. Right. And if you can't right. do that, you absolutely, you absolutely cannot have close relationships. I've heard different opinions with this, and, and it's cool if you don't want to speak on this, but is there any hope for a narcissist as far as undoing it in your professional opinion? Oh, 100%. I have worked with lots of narcissists, generally in couples work, because in my experience, it's the man, right? It does show up in men more often. often. And, and the wife is saying, I was thinking, Chuck DeGroat, and he's writing about narcissism in the church. Like, he speaks to this. Like, the wife is saying, I'm not doing this anymore. Get help or I'm, or I'm out. That's when I see it shift. And I absolutely have seen it shift. And it's some of the most beautiful work I've ever experienced. Yeah. So, yes. But there's got to be someone holding them to the fire. Right. Like, they don't show up in therapy on their right. own. All right. So, I, I thought this was the, the the climax of your talk as far as just like, oh, my gosh. It really was shocking that if people get these things, and I would imagine these things as far as accessibility, responsiveness, and emotional engagement, mm-hmm. 
if the people that you're in relationship with get these things right 30% of the time, then Mm -hmm. you can have a healthy relationship with this person. 30%. Gosh, man, that the bar has just gone so low. I feel freer. I feel better about myself. (laughs) Now, honestly, it really does. It really does go both ways because I can really have some self-condemning thoughts. So just, just Mm -hmm. knowing that even when I'm falling short, what I'm doing may be sufficient for the people that I love. I mean, that's a, that's Mm -hmm. a big deal. It is. It's huge. It's such, it's such a relief. We rely on a therapist a lot. (laughs) We're like 30%, 30%. But the really essential connection piece to that, that we can't overlook is that you have to repair that 30%. It's not going to do you any good if you're not going back and repairing when you miss the mark. When it comes to relational conflict, how vital to a healthy friendship is your friend's loyalty in a heartbreaking relational conflict when impartiality is another option. So in other words, this person can be, your friend can be impartial in this friend situation if he or she wants to, but it's really important for you to have loyalty. Yeah, are you talking about like an example, say you've got a friend going through a divorce, you really need them to like join them in their pain rather than tell them what they're doing wrong and they like the impartiality part. Yeah, is that, yeah, well, gonna, is that kind of what you're Yeah, I think that there's going to be people that are just going to have to be impartial. They just have to. I've been in situations where it's just like I, I just have to be impartial. But Joey Svensson has has been through situations where when it comes to the actual conflict with the actual people, I need the the people that I'm going to share everything with are the people that say, look, I see what you're going through and I've got your back. I I see how you were done wrong. Like I needed people to basically Mm -hmm. affirm, oh, okay, this is a Mm -hmm. shitty situation. Mm -hmm. Oh, gosh. This is like the story of being in church. <laughs> um, I, I think I'm thinking about like the grace and truth combination with that loyalty piece. I'm thinking about responsiveness, right? Like you need that person. You need your people to get get it and see it and hold it and respond to it. And if they also need to tell you you're being an idiot, they need to wait, right? They need to start by just being there. And I think we vary and the situation varies. I mean, if we've been in an abusive situation, a lot of times we do need that person to be like, yes, that was abuse. We often need that for healing. But I think we it, that varies some about how much we can tolerate a, a good friend seeing the big picture. Yeah. Do you does think... Your, yeah, yeah, it does. Do you think that we ever write someone off as unsafe when in actuality there's just a little extra work that needs to go into this relationship and 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 maybe if in that season of life if that person truly feels unsafe then maybe that makes the person unsafe i don't know but i would imagine there's times when no nah, they're not unsafe you could work on this yeah i mean i, I don't in any way want to dismiss abusive situations, right? right? In the church and relationships, like it it is a real thing that we need to take seriously. And I experience more often people riding off people too quickly um, on a regular basis, because actually I believe, and I'm not talking about with abuse, but I actually believe that safety is co-created between two people. And if if someone is feeling unsafe to you, I mean, you can, you can always walk away. You always have that choice. But like if someone's feeling unsafe to you, it actually is going to require both of you putting work in to shift that, not just that the other person changes. Right. I wish more people 
tried more, right. honestly. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All right. Two more questions. What are some practical ways in which you encourage clients who are just so hesitant and maybe it's because of past hurt, but they just don't want to put themselves out there for connection. And I don't necessarily mean as a, you know, for a lifelong partner, but literally friendships. What's, what's some first steps for those folks? Well, I think in, in general, we can't do it. Can't take that risk until our bodies have experienced the safety of being close with someone. That is a big role of, of therapists who, that do therapy like I do is that I want my clients to know, to know what it feels like so that they have a template for what it's supposed to look like and that their body can know being close is safe. Because I think so many of us, our bodies do not know that. So you're, you're wanting your clients to learn what safety feels like from their time with you. Yes. Individually, it's us. Couple-wise, it's with each other. And from there, it, it really does tend to generalize. And then I can kind of offer some challenge. Like, who are you going to... Sure. What are you going to try? You know, some practical. But until they're safe and they know what that's like, I, it feels kind of pointless to me. I also do believe that the church can help with this in tremendous ways, right? They just need to experience it with somebody. Right. Unpack that just a little bit more. How about that for some Christianese? Unpack that for me, Elizabeth. Unpack that. Um, as far as the church part yeah. of it, yeah. for me, it's going back to the, can you have a good friend? Can you be, have, mm-hmm. if you're not a good friend, like there are people in our church who do not know how to be in a relationship and they have been hurt deeply. And I think I really believe that our calling as believers is to be able to step into their lives and love them and sit with them and be with them anyway. And and I think even if they're a pain in the ass, even if they're not responsive, even if they're rejecting in some ways, and, and there's a limit, of course, yeah. but inviting people in who don't know how to do it, I have seen that happen in the church in really beautiful ways. Did that yeah, answer your question? Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Mm-hmm. All right. So this is probably uh, uh, a lob for you. And obviously it could could devote months worth of episodes for it. But with the 50, you know, majority of marriages failing, what yeah. what does this open our eyes to when it comes to just our potential and capability to connect and maintain friendships or relationships? Yeah. I don't think it's about capacity because I truly believe that 99.9% of us are capable of having close relationships. We just don't know. Cognitively, like we haven't been taught and experientially, we haven't, we don't know what it's supposed to feel like or look like. And we don't have anybody helping us or we're not, or we're not willing to get help and we're not willing. I think it's something's gone wrong as far as passing that information on. And then it just like goes generation after generation. Yep. This has been great. Is this something that you want to keep doing? And uh, like, as far as talks and everything, cause that's a completely, totally different thing. You're, you're talking to way more people and it's way more instructional and not a, a yep. personal thing. So it's completely different territory. Do you, did you like it? Like, do you like that part of what you're doing also? Yeah, I love it. I still love teaching. Like I never lost that part. Yeah. yeah. Yes, I want to do a lot more of it. I, I, I'm i working on something right now where I would really like to start working with offering trainings for churches um, because I that's kind of just what I care about the yeah. most. That That's kind of like the next direction. Right. Or, and, and using churches to kind of provide mental, kind of preventative mental health, right? If you can teach someone how to do a relationship yeah. and let them experience it in a group setting, then we're also offering mental health support to a broader network of people who wouldn't be able to afford therapy. Yeah. 
So that's kind of, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I, I think you'd be this, this would probably uh, bring some gladness to your heart. So the church that I'm a part of, we actually have mm-hmm. a licensed therapist who's also a pastor who is basically there for all of our mental health. So he will meet with the pastors that lead the different church locations weekly. They get together for basically group therapy. And (laughs) because of Pastor Chip Judd, I think a lot of our marriages have continued. I mean, honestly, I'm still alive partially to, you know, his support and and all of that. So definitely something that I'm proud of, of our church. And I think a lot of that came because of some very close calls and then some disastrous calls with mental health. It's about time. <laughs> it's about time. It's about, <laughs> it's about time we don't blame everything on demons. <laughs> oh my gosh. That would be really good if we could get away from that. <laughs> isn't, that isn't that horrible that, that to, like, imagine having to live with that. You'd be like, I'm just no match for this thing. Like it just doesn't matter what Absolutely. I do. I am no match for this demon. <laughs> and I still have friends that have churches saying those things to them around mental health. Mm. And it's just, mm. it feels yeah. archaic. Doesn't so it? Painful. It feels archaic. Oh, it does. Yeah. And it, it feels kind of abusive to me to be oh, honest. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. someone's got a diagnosable mental illness and you're telling them they just get the devil out of them. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much, Elizabeth. It was good to, thank it was good you. to meet you again and tell uh, Jeremy I said yes. hello. Okay. We'll do. Thanks. Right, bye-bye. Bye-bye.